Well, for those of you visiting with us, which is a large portion of the uh, <laughs> sanctuary, uh, we are working our way through the book of First Peter. So I didn't just randomly choose this for this morning because I knew any one of you was going to be here. Uh, rather, this is just where we're at in the book, and that's First Peter chapter 3, and in just a moment, we'll read from that. But first, I'd like to ask you a question. What were your favorite games to play as a child? Maybe you preferred card games like Go Fish, Uno, or Rook. Or maybe you liked board games better, Risk, Monopoly, Trouble, The Game of Life, or maybe just Candyland. Maybe you like simple games. But regardless of what your favorite game was, I'm sure there was one thing that was true of you. I'm sure you wanted to win when you played. But in order to win, you had to understand that all these games had rules. They had instructions. They had a certain way that you had to play them. They all had this common theme. Now, of course, some like to cheat in order to win. But to win legitimately, you have to follow the instructions. And all of them worked in a very specific way. If you try to change the rules or cheat, typically the game changes drastically. And more often than not, it's just not going to work at all. Now, believe it or not, marriages work in a similar way. I know, what a comparison. Marriage was designed by God to accomplish his purposes and to bring him glory. And since he is the one who instituted marriage, he is the one who gets to decide how a godly marriage should look. Therefore, even when we don't like the commands of Scripture about marriage, we have to remember that God's the one who designed it and he knows what is best. And so the thesis for this sermon is that because God created marriage, we must submit to his design. So with that introduction, let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray over the text. Lord God, as we come to a difficult text, what is often a controversial text, I do pray that you would give us calm spirits, that you would give us humble hearts as we come before your word, that you might uh, work in our minds and in our hearts uh, that truth that you'd have us learn. For truth comes from you. And so on that, we are dependent, and on that, we must trust. Lord, help us to submit to your truth in all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we live in a culture where views on gender preferences and identities are about as messed up as they could possibly be. So having endured yet another Pride Month, the depth of our culture's wickedness in the realm of sexuality likely needs no explanation. As stated in the introduction of this sermon, God is the one who created men, women, and marriage. 
The scripture, as his word, is the ultimate authority on what defines marriage. Marriage is not just an agreement between two individuals. It is a holy covenant between three parties. Marriage is a lifelong covenant between one man, one woman, and the Lord God. And there is no other pattern for biblical marriage. So before we continue, you must understand that marriage is a special institution unlike anything else that exists in the world. And since it is designed by God, he gets to decide what it is. So we're going to look at three points this morning. First, we're going to talk about Peter's instructions to wives. Second, we'll talk about the husband's duty in the marriage. And lastly, we're going to talk about the purpose of marriage. So the first point is that because God created marriage, the wife must subject herself. So now we can dive into this first command to wives in verse 1. Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, the likewise there points us back in the text to what came before this section. Now, this is the third command in the book of 1 Peter to be subject. First, in chapter 2, verse 13, Peter commanded all human beings, all believers, to be subject to every human institution. Then you go forward to chapter 2, verse 18. And Peter commanded all servants or slaves to be subject to their masters. Now, Peter adds that wives are to be subject to their own husbands. Now, likewise does not mean that wives are to be subject to their husbands in the same way that slaves are subject to their masters. It's not pointing back to that likewise. It's pointing back to the motivation Peter gave for the first two occurrences of the command to be subject. So both in submitting to legitimate government and authority, the reason for obedience has nothing to do with the character of the authority. Peter said to be subject for the Lord's sake. So when we submit to those in authority, we are obeying and serving God first and foremost. Therefore, Peter is saying that the same reason for being subject applies now to wives. So the command is in no way dependent upon how worthy of respect or honor, or how unworthy of respect or honor the husband is. For the wife who wants to show honor to the Lord with her life, this is what she must do. And it's clear in this passage already that the wife must be subject or submit herself to her husband. The passage is very clear on that command. The question now is what that command means. How does the wife subject herself to the husband? What does it mean to subject yourself? Well, be subject can also be translated as subjecting yourselves. So this is in the middle voice, meaning the wife is the one who decides in her own heart to submit herself. It's something that must be done by the person submitting, or it is not biblical submission. Now, in the modern day, submission has been made into a bad word. You hear submission, and it brings to mind slavery, coercion, or even abuse. We think of submission along the lines of being beaten into submission. That is not the kind of submission that Peter is referring to. Peter directs this command to wives as their duty. It is not ever the husband's duty to make his wife submit. Biblical submission must come out of the heart, out of a love for the Lord. It's something done out of obedience to the Lord before anything else. Notice also that this command is for wives to submit to their own husbands. A wife is not obligated to submit herself to any other man other than her husband. Being a husband doesn't mean that you are an authority over any other wife. Now, of course, there's some categories where we all need to submit ourselves to the, 
to the authority. Think government or church leaders, etc. Peter's commands to the wives and the husbands in this chapter specifically refer to life within the household, to life within the family. The family is the core unit on which the church is really built up. And as such, its healthy function is crucial for the health of the church as a whole. God has placed authorities in the life, in life, in hierarchy. Now, hierarchy, it doesn't mean a change in worth or ability, but the responsibilities given by the Lord. Children must obey the parents. Employees are supposed to submit to their employers, and wives must submit to their husbands. So all must submit to and obey the Lord. So when everyone within the family is doing their duty out of love for the Lord, things run smoothly. But what if a woman is married to an unbeliever? Is she no longer required to submit to her husband? Peter tells us something interesting. He says that while the command to submit to husbands is for all wives, there is a special purpose in submitting even to unbelieving husbands. So Peter gives the possibility that some husbands may not obey the word. And to obey the word here is to profess faith in Christ and to live in obedience to the Lord as a Christian. So to disobey the word in this sense is to be an unbeliever, is to not be a Christian. So while the wife is always called to be subject, when she has an unbelieving husband, there's a special purpose to her holiness. Through the witness of godly life, the husband may be one without a word, is what Peter says. It's not through a multitude of words or nagging that a spouse will be brought to faith. A wife badgering her husband with gospel presentations is more likely to cause resistance, to cause walls to go up and to anger her husband than bring him to the faith. Peter says it's not the words of the wife, but her behavior that can evangelize the unbelieving husband. Her respectful and pure conduct will speak volumes to the husband's heart. This is where we need to understand something. In the ancient world, the man determined what the household believed, period. And more often than not, whatever the husband believed, the whole house would have to submit to and even convert to if it was something different. So in a polytheistic pagan world, that sort of conversion really wasn't that difficult. The woman who married her husband just added her God to her husband's problem solved. But for Christian women, adding pagan gods to the mix was not an option. We're called to obey every authority God has put in place. But of course, if the authority commands us to break the law of God... We must obey God rather than men. And so a wife who respected her and respected and submitted to her husband in all allowable things was important. Not only did that make her a witness to him, but it also lessened any chance for persecution for holding to her faith. As a godly wife stands fast on the truth, yet respects and submits to her husband at the same time, she becomes a powerful tool for the witness of the gospel in her house. In other words, The wife of an unbelieving husband is called to be blameless for the purpose of evangelism. The life of the godly wife is a beautiful and powerful thing. Meanwhile, the world wants to place that beauty and the emphasis on beauty in the externals. The bold, the flashy, the youthful, the bright, that's of the highest virtue. But Peter tells wives not to fall for the lies of the world. In verse 3, he says, not to let the beauty you seek be external. Don't focus on the models of beauty that this world parades in front of you. Ads are focused on convincing you that you are not enough until you look like this, own these clothes, have this type of skin, or have this jewelry. 
But Peter specifically warns against focusing on things like braided hair, jewelry, and clothing. Clearly, Peter's very concerned that we seek the right kind of beauty. External things are neither good nor bad. The reasons in your heart for wanting those things is what makes them good or evil. Looking nice is not a bad thing, but there is something far more important than external beauty. Peter says to adorn the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. Don't focus on putting on gaudy fashions. Put on inner beauty instead. The Lord does not want anyone distracted with only the external side of things. He looks to the heart because that is what he judges as either good or evil. And a humble heart that's trusting in the Lord is a beauty that can never fade. That beauty will only grow. But that sort of internal beauty is made known externally through character. So Peter describes this model wife as having a gentle and a quiet spirit. Think of humility, of wisdom, and of love here. When I see this description, I'm reminded of Jesus' description of himself in Matthew 11. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So if you at any point think that Peter is commanding wives to make themselves doormats, you better think again. They are to model Christ in their attitudes and what they value and in how they submit. It is Jesus Christ who modeled perfect submission. He was truly God, and yet he submitted himself to the will of his Father by going to the cross for you. Submission is not weakness, and it is not defeat. Submission is actually a type of strength. It's very similar to self-control or to humility. And Christ is the ultimate picture of willful submission. And that is the picture for wives to meditate on. And Peter tells us that the wife's gentle and quiet spirit is precious in God's sight. So notice that the qualities of the wife mentioned are all about her inner character. The godly wife is not a nag. She's not a fighter or obstinate. She does not badger, shame, or put down. In contrast, this is what the opposite of that would look like. Proverbs 27, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Then Proverbs 21, a similar picture. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. So notice how sharp the contrast is between the quarrelsome wife and the godly wife. The godly woman is gentle and quiet in her spirit. She doesn't use her words in foolish ways. Her speech is constructive and encouraging. Then in verses 5 and 6, just in case we don't understand, Peter gives us an example from the Old Testament for wives to follow. So often in Scripture, believers are referred to as children of Abraham. Well, in the same way, a godly wife is a daughter of Sarah. And notice the order of what Peter lists. Sarah, the holy woman, first hoped in God. Then, because of that hope, she adorned herself with beauty by submitting to Abraham. So notice that the act of submitting is what adorned her soul with beauty. Peter says that Sarah called him Lord, which is a reference back to Genesis 18.12. And this is what this verse says. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So this is an interesting choice by Peter because this was an offhand comment Sarah made to herself, 
when God told Abraham that she would have a son within the year, despite her old age. Now, the reason he chose that verse is that even when she was in a state of disbelief, talking to herself, she called Abraham Lord. Even when she was muttering to herself, she referred to Abraham with honor and with respect. And because of that constant state of humility and love, she is the model. So Peter says that if you follow her example and do not fear anything that is frightening, you are her children. And this last comment in verse 6 is not a requirement that must be followed in order to be a Christian wife. Rather, it's referring to the pattern of life that you are called to. So as you walk with Christ and image him in your marriage, suffering may come your way. Whether that's through an unbelieving husband, the influence of the world, or a believing husband walking in sin, refusing to follow sin may result in persecution. When a husband disagrees with the word of God, the wife must follow the Lord, not the sinner. But even in those moments of fear and danger, the wife can cling to the Lord, knowing that he can both protect and reward. And for all these reasons, Peter commands wives to be subject to your husbands and to adorn the hidden person of your spirit. All right, wives, you can take a deep breath now. Uh, So we're moving on to point two. Because God created marriage, the husband must honor his wife. So, men, if you've been sitting here listening to this section to wives and thinking, man, she needs to hear this. I hope she's listening. You're right. But guess what? Now it's your turn in the hot seat and you need to hear this, too. So Peter's commands to us as husbands are every bit as binding and crucial as the commands to wives. There may be six verses addressed to wives and only one to husbands, but they're actually the same number of commands given. Both sections only give two commands. The only difference is how much Peter expands upon those two commands. So just like back in verse 1, Peter begins verse 7 with likewise. Now this is not saying that men need to retroactively be subject to wives. Like we talked about already, the likewise refers not to the command to submit, but the reason for the commands given. We all submit to legitimate authority for the Lord's sake. Servants are to be subject to their masters because the Lord has commanded it. Wives are to, be, are to be subject to their husbands for the Lord. And in the same way, the reason, the motivation that we have as husbands for following these commands and obeying them is because of Christ. So the way we treat our wives must flow out of our relationship with the Lord. So first, Peter commands you to live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, to live is not just talking about living in the same house under the same roof. It is entirely possible for two people to live in the same house and yet be so distant from each other that they may as well be strangers or even sworn enemies. Living your wife means living with your wife means being present with her through life. And really, it includes everything about the marital relationship. The husband and the wife are one flesh, and that includes intimacy in every aspect of the relationship, from emotions to thinking to physical intimacy. And we can see the depth of this call to invest in marriage relationships by the modifier that Peter adds. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, this phrase translates as according to knowledge. So the question is, what does it mean to live with your wives according to knowledge? What type of knowledge is Peter referring to? Well, some argue that this is knowledge of God's law. We are to use our knowledge of God's law to better love and serve our wives. 
Some think that this is defined by the next part of the verse about wives being the weaker vessel. So under this view, knowledge of your wife's weaknesses, which we will address later what that refers to, knowledge of that allows you to better shepherd her. Now, still others believe that this is knowledge about your wife just in general. Marriage is that continual process of studying and learning about your wife as she changes. And I think there's a lot of merit to that idea. But thankfully, we do not have to choose any one of those options because none of them are mutually exclusive or contradictory. The knowledge in question is really anything about your marriage covenant that brings blessing to your relationship. If you know God's law better, then you will lead and love your wife better. If you know your wife better, strengths, weaknesses, and all, then you will be a better husband. So if you want to honor your wife well, then study her. Pursue your wife continually. Well, next, Peter commands husbands to show honor to the woman. So even though we are the heads of the home, we are still commanded to show our wives honor. While our roles may be different, our value is no higher than theirs. And this is a normal word for honor throughout the New Testament. We are to be continuously showing, rendering, giving, or even paying honor to our wives. In our interactions with our wives, we show them the honor they deserve as image-bearing children of God. Scripture says that we are one flesh with our wives, so showing them honor in a way is really honoring yourself as well. So there is really never a reason to treat our wives poorly or to in any way disrespect them in private or in public. All of our speech generally should be encouraging and uplifting to everyone who hears us, but especially when we speak about our wives. We should not only be our wives' best defenders, but also the first ones to show them honor. All right, so now we can address a fun line that has made many feminists very unhappy for many decades. Another reason we are to show honor to our wives is because they are the weaker vessel. Now, much ink has been spilled over what this phrase means. Now, several places in Scripture refer to both men and women as vessels, just human beings as vessels. So husbands are also vessels, but the wife is here said to be the weaker vessel. Now, normally this word is referencing the physical body. And because of the norms of our biology, women tend to be physically weaker than men. This isn't referring to mental, emotional, or the spiritual abilities of women. The idea is that men may not use their superior strength to coerce, abuse, or intimidate their wives in any way. And I think we can all agree that this passage forbids anything of the sort. And this is especially true since that would be the opposite, both of living with them in an understanding way and showing them honor. But I think this is talking about more than just differences in physical strength. The wife is a weaker vessel because she is a lesser authority in the home. The husband may be the final leader, but that does not mean he has the right to push around his wife because of her position under his authority. So not only is the husband forbidden from abusing his authority, he's also positively commanded to honor his wife. And part of what it means to honor your wife is to consult her and to treasure her input on things. So Peter's given two commands in this verse. We are to live with our wives in an understanding way and to show them honor as the weaker vessels. Now, the seriousness of these two commands is shown in the final phrase of verse 7. I'd like you to look at it. Failure to obey either of these commands from the Lord leads to discipline from the Lord. 
And men, I want you to grasp how serious this punishment is. If you mistreat your wife and dishonor her, your prayers will be hindered. This is where you need to remember that marriage is not only a covenant between two humans. Marriage is a three-person covenant. You, your spouse, and the Lord. So husbands, if you, as the local authority, misuse your authority in any way to oppress your wife, then the Lord will hold you responsible. The one who has bound you and who dwells in the midst of your relationship will enforce the punishment on you as the leader. So what is the punishment? God will not hear your prayers. And here notice how closely our relationship with our spouse and the Lord is connected. Now, women, this specific consequence is not listed for you, but the principle is very much the same. The Lord is always standing between husbands and wives, holding you accountable for how you treat your spouse. And that should strike us both with fear and awe. All right, the third and final point. Because God created marriage, spouses must image Christ. So now that Peter has specifically addressed both husbands and wives, we can address the marriage relationship itself. So talking about men and women and their roles is something that breeds a lot of controversy in our culture. And that shouldn't surprise us because it's an issue that affects us very directly. Whether you're a wife or a husband in a marriage or want to be married or have been married, no one really likes to be told how to live or what to do. And the culture loves to encourage that sense of rebellion and selfishness. However, Scripture never allows us to ignore things because we don't want to hear them. And therefore, we are faced with the reality of what it means to live in covenant with someone else. The authority structure, more than anything else, is the hotbed of argument in the modern era. How do men and women relate to one another within the marriage? Well, there have been a lot of views on this over the centuries. We'll just mention four here. So some abusive men have taken the commands to wives, such as in verse 1, as an excuse to walk all over their wives and force them into submission. But the directions to husbands in verse 7 forbid the husband from mistreating or forcing submission in any way. But even the command in verse 1 rules out this option. Because remember, that command is in the middle voice, meaning the wife is the one who must willingly choose to submit herself to her husband. Therefore, really, that's an unbiblical and an evil view, and we don't need to talk about it anymore. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have more extreme versions of feminism. A few women in that camp would agree to marry in the first place. But if they did, the woman would be the real authority in everything. She runs the home and the husband better get in line. But the problem with that is Peter's command in verse 1 makes that view an impossibility. The husband is the head of the home, not the wife. Now, a less extreme view and a very common one in the church is the egalitarian position. And this view seeks or sees husbands and wives as equal in every way, including their responsibility and leadership in the home. This view is definitely better than the first two options, but there's still a big problem with it. How do you handle the command in verse 1 for the wife to subject herself to the husband's authority? Well, the answer often given is that the likewise in verse 7 for husbands means that they are supposed to also subject themselves to the wife. However, we already noted that the likewise refers to doing our duty for the Lord's sake. So if you follow the argument they use, if likewise means that husbands are to be subject to wives, then the likewise in verse 1 would mean that wives are to be subject to their husbands just like slaves are to their masters. I'm just going to take a guess. 
But I don't think anyone here wants to argue for that point. So really, there's only one option left, and this is the complementarian view. Scripture teaches that both men and women are made in the image of God. The Bible teaches that women have the same worth as image bearers that men do. However, God also made men and women different, just not in their worth. We have different skills, abilities, and duties to perform. Husbands and wives are to complement one another. The strengths of one can make up for the weaknesses of the other and vice versa. So while many God-fearing believers argue for egalitarianism, it's my contention that this passage only allows for the complementarian view. Really, the crux of everything in this passage is in verse 7. Peter tells husbands that your wives are heirs with you of the grace of life. And here we see an amazing tension. On the one hand, there is a hierarchy of authority in the home with the husband as the head. On the other hand, the wife stands as a complete equal in redemption. Never-ending glory with the Lord Jesus Christ in risen bodies is the destiny of believing men and women. And this is the grounding truth on which everything else in this passage really depends. The Lord has established marriage as a means of working out his purposes in the world. Through holy marriages come holy children. Through marriage, God uses both the husband and the wife to sanctify one another as iron sharpens iron. The marriage is the bedrock church structure and the primary means of its growth. The Lord has established marriage not for the husbands and wives to serve themselves, but to serve his glory. God has a purpose in our marriages. What we saw with the commands to be subject to authority and for the slaves to be subject to the master is that the primary purpose of these commands was actually evangelism. So as we live holy lives as good citizens and good employees, we become models of the gospel to the world around us. So in the same way with this text, the wives of unbelieving husbands take on an evangelistic role for the husband's conversion. Married believers become powerful weapons in the hand of the Lord for evangelism. A marriage relationship that is functioning correctly becomes one of the most convincing displays of the gospel to an unbelieving world. This is especially true in a culture where marriage is very much under attack. The weaknesses of one spouse can be covered by the strengths of the other. As the world sees us speaking well of our spouses, only well of our spouses, they will notice that our marriages are different. As the wife subjects herself joyfully to the husband, she will stand out in this culture. As the husband honors and consults his wife in all things and leads sacrificially, it will stand out in a culture that doesn't know what a godly man looks like. And as parents present a united front to their children, they raise them up in the truth, modeling faithfulness, repentance, and humility. But of course, you're going to fail in these things in many ways. Wives, you will fail to submit and to respect your husband at times. Husbands, you will either abuse your authority or you will fail to lead altogether at times. Your marriages will not always be what you would want them to be. But even in your sin and failure, God invites you to repent to him and to your spouse and to press forward by his grace. Because your model is the Lord Jesus who perfectly loves his church. He loved his church enough to die for her. Christ is a model for both how to submit and how to lead. And our marriages are just a small picture of the never-ending love that Jesus has for his church. Your perfect obedience in these commands is not your final hope. 
Jesus Christ is. So to conclude, we began with the proposition that because God created marriage, we must submit to his design. We really break that down into three points. Because God created marriage, the wife must subject herself, the husband must honor his wife, and the spouses must image Christ. So the question for you is this. Are you willing to submit your life, your marriage, to the plans that God has for your marriage? The only way to have a blessed marriage that honors the Lord is to follow his commands humbly, sacrificially, and faithfully. On the other hand, if you're trying to figure out how to win in your marriage each day, then I have news for you. You're already losing. Marriage is not a competition between you and your spouse. The only way to quote-unquote win in marriage is to follow God's commands and serve your spouse with Christ as your guide. Marriage is similar to card games and board games. In order to win, you have to follow the instructions. The Lord has given you all you need to have a God-honoring and even an evangelistic marriage. So wives and husbands submit to God's design for marriage. Remember that you are heirs together of the grace of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is a wonderful mystery that you have designed marriage as a picture of Christ in the church. Marriage is very real in this life, and yet it does have an end point. It will not go on into glory between us here. But the relationship between Christ and his love for the church is truly never-ending. So, Father, help us to have better marriages, to better reflect you and your church. Help us to have better marriages, to better reflect the love you have for your church. And where we fail, where we fail to live up to the commands you have given us, help us to rest in your grace and to look for you for hope and for healing and even for the strengthening of our marriages. Lord Jesus, help us to be an evangelistic people. We lift all these things up to you in Christ's name. Amen.